Welcome to When Movies Were Good, a laid-back discussion about all your favourite films from the silent era up until 1959. You can hear our channel's content on YouTube, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and follow all new updates and events on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Please give us a thumbs up or a good review, whatever your favourite podcast channel allows for. It helps to get us in front of more people. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone. I know you've missed us, but we are back. Welcome back to the podcast with myself, Rachel, and the Jonathan Harris of this podcast, Matt. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Good. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good. I asked him this question in the last recording that we did, so that's why he's a bit like, why are you asking me? <laughs> I'm uh, We are recording remotely. Welcome back to When Movies Were Good. We are, thank you for joining us again. We hope you've been well. Sorry for slight delay in this broadcast, but just a few life changes. Matt lives in a different area of Melbourne to me now. I mean, he kind of did anyway, but we lived in a different area that was closer together. So now we're a little bit further away. So we are recording remotely today just because we hadn't been able to get organised to get together, but we are hoping to record together. So Matt is at his new house, which is lovely. I have visited. I'm still at my flat, and we are doing a Greer Garson double for when movies were good. And Matt, um, is there anything you'd like to say before we start speaking about the lovely Greer? Uh, well, you can always um, make sure that you subscribe to our channel because it helps us get in front of more people. Oh, I'm I'm way out of practice with that line. <laughs> and we are on Facebook, we are on Twitter, we are obviously on YouTube, and uh, and then the other podcast places as well. Is that right? Yes, we're also on our own sofa. Yeah, I'm on the kitchen table actually, but I've got my little hamburger pillow here with me, so I'm quite excited about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're on Zoom now. I thought that it was a very tasty looking pillow. Yeah, it's um, I'm just holding it up for for Matt to see. I love this pillow. It's like my comfort, like my blanket sort of thing. Um, I have two sausage dogs. They'd love that pillow. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Matt does have two very cute little Dutch hound dogs, but um, we're doing the beautiful Greg Arson. Now, uh, I've never actually seen any of her work, obviously, other than a few snippets here and there. Her full name was Eileen Evelyn Greer Garson, but I love the name Greer. I know some other people have had that name and they've been named after her. I don't know them personally, but just have seen them mentioned in social media, etc. She lived from 1904 to 1996, so she was quite long-lived. And she was technically British-American because she was originally from the UK and she was an actress and a singer. She was mostly on contract with MGM, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and she became really her star shone after, uh, sort of during and after the Second World War. And Greer is, is one lady who portrayed a lot of straight-down-the-line, tough, no-nonsense women, uh, you know, that comforting sort of character that would take charge of the situation, you know, sort of what they would call strong women on the home front sort of thing. And she was one of America's top 10 box office drawers uh, from 1942 to 1946. Now, she's one of the most nominated people ever for the Best Actress Oscar, meaning she's received a lot of nominations. She had seven uh, nominations, 
um, along with Betty Davis, I think, as well. She had five consecutive nominations from 1941 to 1945, and she did win for her 92, uh, 1942 film, Miss Miniver, depending on how you'd like to say it, which is one of the movies that we will discuss today. Uh, so, you know, Greer started her uh, early career in her native UK in, uh, in repertory theatre up in Birmingham. And she was a little bit older. She was like in her 20s, well into her 20s. And then she appeared even in television's earliest years. But she did a lot of work on the stage, Matt. So she was uh, very well known in the West End. And she did some Noel Coward plays and other plays by major playwrights at the time. And then lucky for Greer, uh, Louis B. Mayer discovered her while he was in London and he was looking for new talent. How's that for uh, someone to come to the audience for you, Matt? And then she was yeah, trying to... Yeah, thing, he didn't just want to get a postcard to Big Ben. <laughs> Luckily, he stepped into that theatre and saw Greer and um, she uh, she signed a contract with him, which is fantastic for her. She was just sort of scooped up and I suppose that was a risk as well because even though she'd done a bit of early TV work, not really any major film work. She was mostly a stage actress, so there is obviously a difference in technique. But if you're willing to learn, I suppose it's not too much of a step over for you, especially if the camera naturally loves you anyway. So uh -huh. she had... What's that, sorry? Well, just the hard thing being in front of the camera is that you don't always get to um, convey the storyline in the order it happens in the script, so you have to get into the right zone on call. That's right, and also a lot of actors do like that instantaneous feedback they get from the audience. They know if they're kind of connecting to them or not. Obviously, film and TV are sort of different beasts, and you get that feedback in, in other ways, I guess, also mostly for yourself. But it was a while before her career in Hollywood got started because she was actually injured early on. So her first film, which is the first film that we're going to discuss, is the 1938 release in 39 film, Goodbye, Mr. Chip. So this one was set in the UK. And she received her first Oscar nomination. Now, 1939 is a huge year for films. Some people call it the greatest year of films ever. We are gone with the wind. We had all sorts of things, Matt. I mean, would you say... Uh, I'd have to say that, yes. Um, was it, uh, was um, Rebecca supposed to have been put in um, that year, but it got delayed, or am I mixing up with another one? Well, it came pretty close, Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, Rebecca was 1940, so that's possible, but we had sort of like... Now, I'm going to get more my James Stewart films mixed up here but i know that um Smith goes to Washington. is that one yes that's the one yes yeah. that's exactly the one i'm thinking of you know other other films that he was in but it was that one you're right because he was nominated to the academy yeah. award and greer's co-star in goodbye mr chips um who i think was a very deserved winner of that academy award probably beat out the most toughest field for that uh, award ever yeah. in 1939 so yeah, it was a terrible year for Poland, but a great year for movies. Yeah, I just, um, yeah, it's actually just amazing. It's just amazing the films that did come out in 1939. So um, let's discuss the first film here. So we're going to go into uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. So basically, Greer is one of the highlights of the classic 
um, you know, of classic movies. She's one of those very famous actresses that if you are into classic movies, you know Greta Garson. So, you know, she was in, you know, she actually still holds the Guinness World Book of Records at the longest Oscar acceptance speech. She nearly got to six minutes, man. That's amazing because now they cut you off after like 90 seconds. And, uh, and then after they, that... They cut off Will Smith a bit earlier. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And he wasn't even speaking. Yeah, he, he technically wasn't, although he did speak to his seat. This is the reason. that Exactly what happened at the Academy Awards last week is the reason I know I don't watch the Academy Awards. But, um, yeah, and then after that, Matt, they instituted a time limit how long you could speak. So, I mean, I... I they may have a slack limit now. Well, if they cut all the other rubbish out of the show and let the major award winners actually have their five or six minutes on the stage, I would much prefer that. So let's go into, um, you know, look, Greer acted right into the 1960s. And then her final role, you know, obviously she was sporadic getting into her later life, was in one of my favourite childhood shows, a 1982 episode of The Love Boat. So that was... Yeah, I knew you'd be into that one. (laughs) So she did, you know, episodic TV, she did, but her her main career was in the 1940s, especially with the two films that we're going to discuss. So without further ado, we just needed to discuss the person that um, obviously linked the films together. And now we will get on to the films and our thoughts of them. So goodbye, Mr. Chips. I was joking to Matt before. I didn't even really know, very familiar with the name of the film, very familiar that it's a famous film. Didn't know if it was set in a fish and chip shop or what, uh, <laughs> but it wasn't set in a fish and chip shop. It was set in a, um, a school for boys and follows the life of the school teacher there. So it's, um, I mean, some people would coin it, I guess, a romantic drama because Mr. Chips, who played by the wonderful Robert Donat in this film, um, you know, he, it's one of those films where the person's kind of looking back on their life sort of thing and then we get to see their life. And it's a, one of these amazing things that certain actors and actresses get to do, Matt, when they play someone who's quite young to quite old on their deathbed. And it's always amazing to see how they can do that. Now, actors now get a lot of help with CGI, prosthetics, all sorts of things. But back then, and this is really Robert Donat's film, even though Greer's great in it playing his wife, um, he did a great job. Well, he set himself up the mustache, really helped him get into character. <laughs> like, I had real trouble believing that this was uh, Robert Donat playing Mr. Chips, who's this sort of um, stuffy Edwardian chap with a large uh, moustache, because I, for ages, had only ever seen him as the slick uh, leading man in the Thirty Nine Steps, and that yes, was kind I, of uh, that. Ja- and that was kind of James Bond before James Bond uh, was a twinkle in Ian Fleming's eye, uh, mm-hmm. sort of. So the brutal cream, uh, thin-built um, uh, leading man. So uh, that was quite a character change. Yeah. Um, so Robert Donat himself, a very talented actor, he didn't make that many movies because he actually was quite an anxious person that he did do a lot of stage work and stuff as well. 
um, and actually ran a few theatres in his time. But he, he suffered had rather, really... I, didn't he have chronic asthma or back yes. problems? Yes, well? yeah, that's exactly right. He suffered from chronic asthma. And a lot of it was, I don't know if you use the term psychosomatic, but a lot of it was brought on by his sort of mentality if he felt sort of stressed or... And he tried all sorts of um, remedies, like moving to different climates. And But, you know, sometimes it can be a self-repeating cycle. Like if you think you're going to be sick, you are going to be sick. I kind of know this firsthand myself. So Paul Robert um, suffered with that. So it's a shame that we, even though, like, I just look at him in this role. I think, God, how did he even get through this? And I haven't seen him in the 39 steps, but working with Alfred, Alfred he would have been held to a very high standard. So... Yeah, well, um, Hitchcock uh, only got to do that one picture with Donat, and for years was trying to get him to work together with him again, and, and it just didn't happen. So, yeah, as, as far as to the satisfaction of quality. Yeah, exactly right. So he was I'd like fantastic. To, I'd like to um, get more um, of Donat on the screen after um, our experience. Uh, like, like you said, he didn't make that many films, but we can uh, scrounge together what he did make and uh, do an episode on him someday. Yeah, definitely, because he is in, obviously, the 39 Steps, so anything with Alfred Hitchcock, um, I love, but especially Matt loves as well. So, basically, Goodbye, Mr. Chips is, um, Mr. Chipping, as he's really known, Chips is a nickname that he gets. Um, he is thinking about the first day he starts teaching um, at this public school. So in the UK, public schools are private schools, Matt. Is that what we understand uh, them to be? I had to um, do a bit of a research to understand this concept in the last few days. Public in the uh, traditional UK sense refers more to the diversity students who have the privilege of paying or enrolling to be there. It's right. not, it's, uh, it's not uh, like in Australia, public we tend to think means uh, government subsidized, subsidized universally, but public uh, there means more to do with uh, uh, that it's not restricted to a particular body of a locality, anything like that. So somebody oh, right. can yep. put a role in there and that sort of thing. Yeah, I sort of yeah. I guess in our vernacular here in Australia, we sort of maybe coin it more as a private type school. But over there, it just as, as as Matt said, it's sort of its own sort of entity. And I know there are other sorts of schools that they have over there as well, like grammars and things like that, that are a bit different to our system here and in the US and Canada. So and you get a real headache if you try to understand the German school system. Yeah. <laughs> How did I know Matt would bring up Germany? <laughs> yeah. So um, to cut a long story short about Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Robert Donat's character, Mr. Chips, is is looking back at his life as an elderly man teaching at this school over the period of nearly 60 years and it's a, a school for boys and he starts off as this teacher that's, you know, taken advantage of by his, um, by his pupils. He gets to understand him, they get to understand him, everyone grows to love him. He's a bit of an awkward sort of shy man. He meets Greer Garson's character who becomes his wife um, it's a beautiful sort of relationship that the two of them have. There's a lovely scene with them at a train station and they're travelling around Europe and just all very lovely and nice and quaint and uh, and then tragedy sort of befalls him and his wife 
And the only way he knows how to cope with it is to go back to his class and his pupils and just try and get on with his life as best as he can. So it's really sort of, uh, you know, I don't know if you'd say it was a coming of age, but it's the story of a person's life told through their vocation. And um, it's just a beautiful film. It was based on the 1934 novel by James Hilton. So the film was made in 1939. So it's not only five years in between that. And um, it doesn't, the film doesn't follow the same time uh, frame as the novel. So in the book, Mr. Chips or Mr. Chipping is like 22 when he arrives at Brookfield, which is the school. Um, and he's 85 when he dies. Uh, but in the film, they sort of change that around a little bit. I guess they use a little bit of artistic, uh, artistic license. So Robert Donat won his Academy Award for this role. He was well deserving of that. And he beat out Jimmy Stewart. He beat out Clark Gable. He, and I think he deserved it. I think he did a really good job with this role, especially showing the different phases of life and also playing that very, you know, kind of Mr. Spock-like character that can't show a lot of emotion, especially with what happens with his wife. So, Well, it's, what's amazing about this character is that he still ranks in, um, like, top 50 and top 100 uh, movie heroes of all time by the American Film Institute and those sorts of bodies. So, And, like, I hadn't um, seen this film until this episode, and uh, I... I, I, I get it. It's uh, like such a... Uh, like I, I, I wanted to um, find criticisms through the film, but it was kind of like when you um, are watching a film about... a sad film about a puppy, you're really just trying to cover up the tears building in you. Yeah, because there's so many, like, tragic events that happen to him, but so many, like, triumphant events over the course of his life. And then that particular part, you know, spoiler alert, at the end of the film when they go back to him on his deathbed and, you know, the, the person with him in the room said, oh, you know, says a sort of an offhand comment, oh, it's a shame he never had any children. Of course, that part of that is in the is in the film as well with the loss of his wife. But he goes, uh, you know, I can't remember the line exactly now, but something like, well, what are you talking about? I've had so many children in my life and they were all boys. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I thought thought that was just a beautiful sentiment because there are some people who come to the earth and for whatever reason, I think Dolly Parton was even saying this. Is she's like, I felt my job here was to be a mum to everyone. Obviously, her own siblings, of which there were many, but a mum to everybody I could be, and that my role here was to be an external mum to everyone. I kind of feel a bit like that myself, and so she said it just wasn't in my life plan to be a mother myself but I feel like I'm a mother to so many other people especially her siblings so I kind of agree with that and Mr Chips you know Mr Chips is sort of like that kind of a story about someone that is a loving guiding force to so many people yeah well it's it's uh and in an age where uh, you're expected to um expect that you don't commit to any workplace to instead have a character who's devoted over six decades uh, to, of his life to being this uh, impassioned uh, teacher in a, in a school it's, uh, and uh, forming a emotional uh, 
connections between each child and uh, uh, sort of um, rearing generations. It's mm-hmm. it's a turns its head its head completely on top of um, what we'd expect now. I I see this film as um, it like uh, stating the obvious, but it's a it's a film that shows the hero heroism of of this of the chips. I don't regard it as a as a glorification of the traditional English school system. Um, I mm-hmm. we we kind of know that. Uh, English boarding schools in this period were nothing like of that glamour that we are um, uh, glamour that uh, the likes of Harry Potter may make us uh, think now. Like I've just been reading a lot of uh, jo- uh, a lot of George Orwell's work, and uh, there's no glorification of the boarding school environment at that time. You had uh, rather unpleasant uh, class-based bullying, poor hygiene, poor uh, sanitation and, and food um, so as far as what it portrays of a school in brick and mortar that was a very Hollywood romanticization because it's we're talking about a studio in America uh, just um, creating this fantasy world of the UK much like uh, in Mrs. Minerva or Minerva mm-hmm. but, <laughs> but within but within um, an institution which you know it would not necessarily be that good. You know, you know, and hope that in real life there are those sort of golden hearts like chipping. Yeah, exactly. So the film was very. Yeah, I agree with what you said there, Matt, for sure. And the film was very well received at the time, and then obviously, as as time has gone on from the film as well, it was shot in the UK in Derbyshire at one of the schools there, and um, other than the young actors who had the main roles in the film. The boys who actually were attending this school, they sort of were the sort of background, you know, people at the school, sort of the, the students at the school. So the film was very nominated for Academy Awards. Unfortunately, being in such a tough year, um, obviously outstanding production, best director, actress, best writing. I mean, this was Greer's first film as well that she did in Holly, well, for Hollywood for MGM screenplay, best editing, best sound. Now, unfortunately, as it was up against Gone with the Wind in all of those categories, pretty much the film lost to Gone with the Wind in all those categories, although Robert Donat won for Best Actor, as I mentioned before, beating Laurence Olivier, Clark Gable and Jane Stewart. Hello, could it be any tougher? Um, and um, and then Mr. Smith goes to Washington and the only the only Academy Award that they managed to get away from Gone with the Wind was um, Best Original Story. So uh, there was a remake in 1969 with Peter O'Toole, who I do like, um, you know, although Lawrence of Arabia was a touch long for me, and Petula Clark. So I wouldn't mind actually seeing that. And then there was another version with a well-known English actor called Martin Clunes as well. So definitely a very uh, well-known film and a very loved film. So Matt, we're going to go over to Greer's other film now that we are discussing, and that is it's the kind 19- of a, It's kind of a paradox. We barely talked about Greer because really she only has a sort of a a, a token appearance in this in the first film, Mister Ships. Yeah, I was sort of thinking it's just because it's one of her most well-known films. Um, but really it's not her film, it's Robert's film. But um, we've had a few situations like that where we've chosen a really well-known film for an actor 
Um, we know that they're in it, everyone knows that they're in it, and then they're actually one of the supporting roles and we probably perhaps to showcase their talent should have chosen another film. But I think it's I think that's okay. I think, you know, she was obviously the most important female character in the film and she did a fantastic job with what she needed to do because her character was quite feisty and very different to Mr. Chip. So um, the fact that the two of them got married and she made that relationship between the two of them work on screen is is a testament to her. her. And it would have been easy for her character to be quite wooden and static and sort of uh, thrown, thrown away by an act, another actress, but she re- really glowed within. Yeah, and it's just, um, it's interesting. So then when we contrast to Mrs. Maniva or Mrs. Miniver, I think it just depends on how you want to say it. Well, how do, how do they say it? Maniva or Miniver? Miniver, wasn't it? Miniver. So, I um, have the rose. Yeah. <laughs> I think they, I think in the film they say Miniver. So it's um, in 1942. Again, this is an American film um, directed by the very famous William Wyler who was discussed uh, before on this podcast and starring Greer Garson and Walter Pigeon. So, again, inspired by a novel, which a lot of these great films of the time were. And, again, this novel that was written by Jan Struther was only released in 1940 and the film came out in 1942. So, basically, this film, again, it's spanning a period of a person's life, so not as long as Mr. Chips, but during uh, the Second World War, of a sort of, you know, well-to-do British housewife that's sort of really worried about shopping and, you know all the fancy stuff of life and doesn't really have too many cares in the world uh, in rural England and just how her and her family and were touched by World War II. And when these world wars were going on, you know, obviously there's a conflict in the world that's going on now uh, along with many others, but there's a main one as, as we know, Matt, at the moment. But here in Australia, we're not, okay, there's maybe a few things indirectly affecting us, but we're not, directly affected by it yet. It's just certain, like, follow-on things, maybe petrol prices, things like that, that are affecting us. But back in... But this film really shows the effects of total war on the home front. Exactly. And what Matt just said. But in World War One and Two, you were not affected. There was nobody that was not affected in some way. If it wasn't someone in your direct family, it was someone on your street. It was someone in your neighbourhood. It was a cousin. It was some... So everybody lost somebody or had people who were away and it was really the women at this time that had to step up along with the men that weren't able to go and fight who kind of had to keep society going. They were the ones working in the factories. They were the ones having to keep things going along with the other men that were there that couldn't fight. So we had um, obviously Walter Pigeon in this film as well. The film was produced by MGM again. Obviously, they were the ones that signed uh, Greer, but set in England. Um, And it was actually the highest grossing film of 1942. It won six Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress. So Greer was nominated for Miss Chips, I think, in either Actress or Supporting. but she won for this film, and then Teresa Wright uh, won for Best Supporting Actress. So, and then it was kind of like... great actress from Shadow of a Doubt. Yes, yeah, I was wondering why I had seen her before, and Matt just said it then. 
And then in 1950, actually, a se- I haven't seen the sequel, but a sequel called The Miniver Story was made with Guru Garson and Walt Pigeon reprising their role. So that would be worth seeing, definitely. Oh, yeah. So um, it's considered a very inspirational film. Um, it is, you know, about life of, of Kay Miniver, played by Greer Garson. So they live in this comfortable family life at the start. Um, so they live, it's not in London, but it's down the River Thames. Um, having travelled down the River Thames, it does go on for quite a while. <laughs> so you can sort of be in the countryside, but you've actually come from London on the River Thames. And, um, you know, she's a housewife, her husband's an architect, they've got three children, they've got live-in staff, everything's going good, they're going shopping, and then all of a sudden, you know, not really all of a sudden, but, you know, it had been on the horizon for a while, uh, World War II breaks out, and um, everybody has to do their bit, and this is a story about uh, Kate and her family doing their bit. So what did you think of this um, film, Matt? Well, I actually, <coughs> excuse me, a bit of a chest, chest infection. Uh, sorry about that. Um, That's okay. You okay? Yeah, yeah, fine. Okay, so back to my uh, my point. So I actually had seen it years before, but I forgot I had. Okay. Uh, first of all, I was shocked to find out that from this, I realized that in the one of the first episodes of Downton Abbey, they stole the plot about the flower show. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, Maggie Smith's character uh, who threw the uh, first prize for the uh, prize-winning rose. Um, but yeah, I... Yes, on a more uh, serious note, I loved this motion picture. Mm-hmm. I... Uh, there is a... Uh, a, a perfect, delicate presence that uh, Greer manages to maintain the whole time through, and uh, the uh, and well, it is it, you. You occasionally come across one that does maintain a certain magic, and the fact that the film ends with this campaign for war bond stamps, uh, yes. kind of, sort of makes it a, in literal black and white how far time has passed on it. And it was literally, like Casablanca, uh, mm-hmm. uh, sort of uh, very rooted in the time it was made. And yet somehow it has an age. Sometimes when you when you see a production uh, put together that responds to immediate news events, it, it fades as quickly as it appeared. But this one hasn't. Yeah, it's... um. It just sort of, I, I mean, probably from an emotional standpoint, I enjoyed Goodbye, Mr. Chips more. But this film, it's it sort of, with regards to what's happening in the world right now, it's very relevant to what our lives, we hope, don't become. That we all get swept up in this, you know, terrible thing called war. And, you know, it is sort of heartbreaking in a way, um, just seeing, you know, your life going from one thing to another and then the next thing you're sitting in bomb shelters and, you know, bombed out buildings. I mean, you know, like people that could tell the stories about the bombing raids in London and stuff, it was just like a daily event where you were having to go hide under the tables and hide in the shelters and, 
Well, you know, showing just... that extended scene in a bomb shelter dealing with explosions all around them, I think, was one of the most important. Exactly. And it was just, you know, like in our period of life, it's not something that we've had to deal with. A lot of that sort of immediate, um, you know, the Cold War had dissipated and all that stuff. So a lot of people in the 20th century sort of grew up being very fearful that a war was going to happen at any time. You know, they had bomb shelters already in the home, especially in the US. They were sort of very prepared for things like that and the different aspects of the Cold War. But these people actually went through to war, through war. It wasn't a Cold War. So they actually had the fighting at in their homes, on their home front. Their houses were destroyed, you know, especially like the Territorial Army, even if they weren't fighting in Europe, um, they were patrolling the streets and they could easily have been knocked off then, you know by some errant bomb or something like that. So it just, you know, they had to patrol the waterways. They had to, I mean, Matt and I worked at, hang on, Matt, were you in Dad's Army? No. I worked at the theatre that Matt and I volunteer How at. How old do you think I am? <laughs> well, the first production I worked on there was Dad's Army, and that's essentially what, what Dad's Army is about. It's a very sort of famous British TV show, but it's about the men that sort of op- operate the territorial army uh, who sort of stayed behind. The home obviously, guard. The home guard, yes, that's exactly that's exactly right. And obviously they were too old or just not competent enough to join the main military or whatever. And um, a very, very sort of slapstick, funny comedy, but, you know, it's roots in something very serious. So, uh, and, the, and the film is a very inspirational film. It's about, you know, the old, you know, Maxim, the old sort of saying of keep calm and carry on. And you, was it Queen Elizabeth that coined that term, or I think it was, wasn't it? Keep calm and carry on. But that's a very sort of English. I, I don't know. Once I don't know. It's a T-shirt that's lost all meaning. It is because there's so many memes with different different things. But the original comment was keep calm and carry on. And I think, I'm pretty sure it was Queen Elizabeth that came out with that, or someone from the royal family. It's like, yeah, we just have to and really follow it up. Her. Keep calm. You can still marry Harry. <laughs> We'll keep calm, we'll keep Andrew locked in the basement or something like that. But, um, yeah, it was... Um, look, I think I probably just preferred the the school teacher and the children. And obviously, the First World War was discussed in Goodbye, Mr Chips. Obviously, Mr Chips wasn't able to go because he was uh, old, but he had to had to run the school while the younger teachers went off to the war and then where obviously and this film is very contemporary i mean the war was going on when this film was made so or it was you know sort of coming to the sort of crux of it um so it's interesting that a film about war was made when the war was actually on but i think they did a lot of films about the war when it was on from from my understanding but this is a but this is greer's film and it's definitely, I wouldn't say a virtuoso performance, like Walter was very good in this film. Actually, everyone was really good in this film, especially some of the older um, character actors and actresses. But um, just another very haunting and memorable film. Yeah, well, and it doesn't automatically happen that if you have a strong war story with some major cast members that it's, Falls out through. I mean, um, there was a film I saw once called, I think, The 49th Parallel, where I just found it on an old videotape. Yeah. And 
that was like a, a mesh of a lot of different major actors from Olivia up to um up to Sydney Howard and all those uh, types but it's uh, not lasted lasted well it's uh, it, it may have uh, drawn in some ratings at the time but uh, yeah it, you can't um you you can't always expect to uh, to sort of uh, sift out this perfect formula of success yeah, and and look, the film was even though it's an American film, it was set in the UK. So the film went into pre-production in 1940, and the United States was still technically not in the war at that point. It obviously wasn't until December 1941, when Pearl Harbor was attacked, that the so US they had to keep reshooting it to make the Germans nastier and nastier as their foreign policy got more aggressive. Yeah, well, yeah, basically. So in the scene. Spoiler alert, when Mrs. Miniver confronts a downed German um, pilot in her garden, um, that was rewritten so she could actually... I just realised another modern TV series that rips off Mrs. Miniver, that series Lang Girls, um, has has a scene with a German soldier hiding out and uh, sort of gets into a confrontation with a... My my God, how's all this plagiarism being got away with? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, but we all, the reason we do when movies were good because we talk about when movies were good, which is not the case now. <laughs> no, it's it's not true everything made now, but... Um, I feel yeah, like it's, it's just, become a copyright crusader. Yeah, it's just, yeah, unfortunately, there's just so much recycling of things that have already been done really well. So that was that was kind of interesting. So following the Pearl Harbor attack, Certain scenes were filled again um, and they were able to be a lot more confronting in some of the scenes that they did. But one of the most famous parts of the film is the sermon at the end of the film. And I was reading here that President Roosevelt at the time used sort of part of the speech or aspects of the speech as a morale builder. And he, um, you know actually had it printed out on leaflets and things like that and were dropped into certain en- enemy territories and things like that. And uh, it was sort of a piece of propaganda too, I guess you could say. Um, so Roosevelt actually had it put into the theatres a bit earlier. And the, so the sermon dialogue at the end of the film is very famous and was reprinted in many magazines at the time. And a very well-received film. I think anything that sort of was inspirational at the time to do with war, especially when the public was going through the war, uh, definitely has a place in history, has a place in the hearts of the audience. It's, it's still a very emotional, interesting film to watch now, especially with the way the world is right now. Um, did very, very well at the box office and was a very well-awarded film. So I'd actually like to see the Miniver story. Matt, I didn't actually realise. I didn't actually realise that there was a sequel to this film. So I'll have to sort of have a look at that and um, um, just having a quick look at it. They return in their original role. Yes, but um, yeah, it did does testify to the success of the first one. Yeah, so I think off the basis of the first one, they made the second one because it looks. I'm just going through the plot here. And it looks like it's just a continuation of the story with the family doing different things as time has gone on. So um, obviously the Minerva story, it's probably more about their family 
obviously with the war being over. I'm just having a look, quick look through the plot here without do, 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 without giving too much away because we're not discussing it, but it looks like it's it's what happens to the family after the war. So that still looks a bit more soap opera-ish, Matt, so I think I'll definitely have to check that one out. And unfortunately, I, I haven't found any connection to Larry Hagman other than he ostensibly served in World War II um, in London and he was supposed to be doing... Oh, no, sorry. No, he was no, he was a bit young to be in World War II. <laughs> sorry, it was in... Um, he served in the army in London doing uh, acting and production shows. So that's about as close as I can get on this one. Uh, that's an interesting track record. I wonder what medals they get for that. <laughs> well, because he was pretty blind, um, even though like in Genie and stuff, he didn't wear glasses, but he was he was a person that wore glasses most of his life. So uh, he had pretty weak eyesight. So I don't think he was able to do any active duty. But in the 50s, he, with his mother, appearing at uh, Theatre Royal at Drury Lane, in her various productions, he actually was based in the UK and he was signed up to the US Army and he did work out of the UK, of London. Actually, that's where he met his Swedish wife. So that was about the only the only link that I could find, sad to say. But Larry would have only been 10 on World War Two, so he was just a bit young for that. So this was in the 1950s that he served in the Army. Gee, thanks for sharing, but that's fine. But <laughs> I mean, you've done a good job uh, till now of um, showing how Larry Hagman was the Forrest Gump of old Hollywood. Uh, yeah, exactly. Just up everywhere. Yeah, well, I think the fact that his mother, even though she was predominantly a stage actress, Mary Martin, she did appear in some classic Hollywood films, and she was good friends with a lot of very well-known people of the time. So, you know, like Larry could ring up, Nancy Reagan whenever he wanted type thing and, and you know his mother knew a lot of people and obviously because she was so famous on Broadway a lot of people sought her out as well so um, so he, he knew a lot of these people and he did spend time with them maybe not growing up but maybe as an older person so I'm sure he had a you know he has a few had a few more stories to tell that he left out of his book so thank you for joining us it was it was great to actually watch some Greer films Matt, are we going to have to put ourselves on hold for a second because we haven't actually confirmed what... Oh, yes, we have. Yes, we have. We well, are we're going doing... to do with Star Wars Born. Yes, we are go... but we're going to do because... Okay, so we're obviously not touching the Lady Gaga one. We're not even going to touch the Barbara Streisand one. We are going to touch the original two versions. We're going to do the two versions. Is that right? Yeah, I, I'm trying to think. Are there any other films that have been remade so many times? Um, there probably is, but the unique thing about A Star is Born is that we have them in all different time frames. I, I wouldn't mind seeing the Barbara, even though, you know, at times she grates on my nerves, I wouldn't mind seeing the Barbara Streisand version. I don't have any interest in seeing the Lady Gaga version. I think hearing that, that song played enough on the radio was enough for me, but I am very much looking forward to uh, the, the two versions that we will watch. Let me just go through and bring up the details on them. So we, so the first Star is Born that we are going to discuss, Matt, is the 1937 version, and that's with Janet Gaynor and Frederick March. Yep. So that's the first Star is Born. 
So this film is a very made film, all the versions of it. Then we're going to watch doo, 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 A Star is Born. Oh, great, it's on Netflix. Um, a Star is Born with the wonderful Judy Garland and James Mason. Okay, so this is kind of the first remake. So this is in the 1950s. North by Northwest meets Gone with the Wind. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> Wizard of Oz. Yes, yeah, so actually, I just got that joke then. <laughs> <laughs> so this film was a very awarded film as well. So we're going to do those two versions. We're going to do the 30s version. We're going to do the 50s version. Um, and I think it's just interesting. I mean... It might be worth watching all the versions just so we can compare and contrast. How long does the 2018 version go for? Two hours and 15 minutes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. That's the one with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper in it. Um, that's about all I know about it, except there's a lot of screaming in the main title song. And then we've got 1976, A Star Is Born. And then, of course, we have, um, oh, my gosh, Kenny Loggins is in that film. Um, yeah, that's with, I believe that's with uh, Chris Christophers and Barbara Streisand. But there's a lot of really well-known people in that film that I know. So I think I'll have to, I think I'll have to watch that film, even though, you know, Babs can be a bit sort of hard to take at times. But, yeah. I've been Hello, Dolly. Yeah, I've seen her in... I've seen her in um, things in the 70s and things in the 80s. And, I mean, don't, don't own things in the 90s. Don't get me wrong. She can be entertaining. But it's sort of like I'm Barbara Streisand in this role. I'm Barbara Streisand in that role. I'm Bar and if it fits the role, great. But if it doesn't, like Yentl, I'm still trying to get over that. But that's fine. Um, <laughs> it's not like it's, Olivia who could somehow... Uh, sort of, uh, he was like a, a a sheet of thin fabric that could mould over any mask. Yeah, it's it's sort of you know some people are real like Tom Cruise is is this sort of person. They're really good at playing different versions of themselves that fit into the movie. And if it fits into the movie really well, it's awesome. It doesn't always work, but they're really good at playing the different versions of themselves. And let's face it, most actors are. There's only a rare breed of actor that is that character. I mean, your romantic leads and all that are not going to, that's not what they're there for. Uh, as Chuck Norris says, I want to play the sort of characters that I want to see on the screen. So he's got no interest in character acting or whatever. And considering that Jonathan Harris was his, um, you know, was his um, acting coach, which you can imagine the scenes between Chuck Norris and Jonathan Harris, but, you know. Um, <laughs> in fact, that would make an interesting play, Matt. That would really make an interesting play. Um, Chuck meets Jonathan. Get out of the notepad. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that would be hilarious. That would be absolutely hilarious. Chuck, hang on, let me write that down. But in the meantime, we'll see you for the Star is, Star is Born double because we've actually already spoken about it quite a bit anyway. We will see you next time. Thank you for joining us as we um, discuss two beautiful films, from Guru Garson and her wonderful um, co-cast as well. Well worth watching. In the meantime, we will be... Um, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. Sorry, I nearly forgot that outro. And we're watching good movies. Thank you, and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.